from WXOJLP Northampton, 103.3 FM, your Valley Free Radio Station. Welcome. I'm Warren Odestulet, and this is A Baha'i Perspective. Perspective is a radio program of biographical interviews of people who have either chosen the Baha'i faith as a way of life or who have a relationship with the Baha'i faith. Today I'm playing a telephone interview with Soveda Ma'ani Ewing, a Baha'i and author of the book Collective Security Within Reach. I started the interview by asking Soveda where she grew up and what was it like growing up there. I grew up in two countries. I grew up from birth age nine in Nairobi, Kenya, in East Africa. I was born while Kenya was still a British colony, and then it won independence about a year after I was born. They were very interesting times in Kenya. I attended a school in which we had a a quota system, so you had a, a certain percentage of the children were labeled whites, and then a certain percentage were the Africans, and then the rest of us, and I fell into the last category were considered colors. So there were a lot of racial tensions in Nairobi when I was growing up. But it was a beautiful country, and the people of the country were really beautiful, always smiling, radiant, happy, despite all the racial tensions. And I I loved the country, and it's a physically gorgeous, gorgeous country. That's what my life was like for the first nine years. And then at about age nine, my mother and I moved to Haifa, Israel, where my mother had been invited to serve at the Baha'i World Center. And I spent the next seven years going to school there until age 16. And then I went to England to do my last two years of high school and stayed there for university. You grew up as a Baha'i? I grew up as a Baha'i, yes. Was it because your parents were Baha'i that you were in Kenya? Yes, we were in Kenya because my parents were Baha'is and decided to leave Iran to go as what we call Baha'i pioneers to East Africa to share their faith with the communities of East Africa and to settle there and to serve their communities in their individual capacities. My father actually went first. He started off in the Seychelles Islands and then ended up in Kenya, and my mother went out, joined him, married him, and then had me. Actually, my father passed away a year after they were married, and I was born four days later. Oh, my gosh. So it was a a tragic time for for my mother uh, and a very difficult time, but she stuck it out and stayed in what we call her pioneering post. So you never knew your father then? So I never knew my father, no. Do you know the story on how they became Baha'is? My parents are several generation Mm Baha'is. I am a seventh generation Baha'i on my mother's side. On my father's side, I'm not exactly sure, but I think I'm about fifth generation Baha'i. So both of my parents were born into Baha'i families. Now, of course, you know that one of the tenets of the Baha'i faith is that each individual has the duty to investigate truth and 
including spiritual truth for themselves in an unfettered and unbiased manner. So even though we're born into Baha'i families, we do make an active decision to embrace the Baha'i faith as our, and make it our own. And can you describe for me that process that you went through for that? Well, growing up in Kenya, which was a Christian country, I was exposed to uh, Christian teachings. I went to Christian schools. I went to churches. In fact, we, you know, we had to go to chapel services and so on. Same in England. In Israel, I went to a Catholic school but lived in a Jewish neighborhood and was invited to participate in the Jewish traditional days. And we used to go to the synagogues. Of course, there were sections that were reserved for women. I studied the the faith, the history of the faith and their teachings, but it always made sense to me from the beginning to be a Baha'i because it was only the Baha'i faith that made sense of the fact that we had all these religions. I I had always thought that it, it, it just didn't right that it was a question of drawing a lot out of a hat. You know, if, if I were born into a Jewish family, I'd be Jewish. If I were born into a Protestant family, I'd be Protestant, and so on. There had to be some system to this whole business of religion. And the Baha'i faith, of course, with its teachings on progressive revelation and an understanding that there is a single creator who has sent all the divine teachers, all the prophets, just at different times in our history, to teach us and guide us in accordance with our capacity to understand truth, that idea resonated very strongly with me. And so, it, you know, it didn't take me long to, to make my decision. So you said you went to England you were, when you were 16 and you finished high school there, and then you said you went on to university? Yes, I went on to university in England. I went to law school. Law school in England, is a, it's a first degree, it's a bachelor's degree course. So I became a lawyer, and then I had to do extra training to be a barrister at law in England, essentially what we would call in the U.S. a trial lawyer. And that's what I I became after a year of study and a year of apprenticeship. And then I did my master's degree in England at Cambridge University. I studied international law and what was then European community law. And then I worked at the university for a year as a researcher in international law. And then what did you do after that? I moved to the United States. That was in 1987, and I've been here ever since. Why did you choose the United States? I chose the United States because my husband at the time was an American, and so we were able to come here. He also was having a great deal of difficulty finding a job in the United Kingdom and didn't have a visa. So we moved here to the United States. I was also very attracted to Washington, D.C. for some reason. It it just felt like the right place for me. It was the right mix. It had the right mix of international law, international development. Uh, The embassies were here. The energy was right. It was a slower-paced city than, say, New York, which I didn't think I could live in. And I've stayed here. I've been here 22 years. And did your law accreditation transfer to the United States? No, it didn't. I had to do a second master's degree and uh, sit for the bar exam here in Washington, D.C., and a few years later I took another set of bar exams for the state of Maryland. So I had to become qualified here again. What kind of work did you do when you came to the United States? 
I joined a law firm in Washington and worked as an associate in the area of international banking initially. And then I moved to another law firm and did international maritime and transportation law. And then I struck out on my own and had my own law firm for a few years doing something completely different, which was family law, which I enjoyed enormously. And finally, I went back to my first love, which was public international law, and I ended up at the State Department working in the office of the legal advisor to the State Department and uh, enjoyed that very much for about four and a half years uh, and then left to pursue my own course of study um, to become an independent scholar, do research and writing in the field of collective security, which is what I still do, and, and to write books. Tell me about your family law practice. My family law practice was wonderful. A lot of people ask me if I didn't find it depressing. And my answer has always been no. I, I always felt that I had the privilege of stepping into situations that were already dire, not of my own doing. And if I could bring any measure of relief to the parties involved, especially if there were children in the divorce, then I felt that I'd really done a service to those folks and to humanity. So I enjoyed my practice. I enjoyed the fact that I ran my own firm, that sense of entrepreneurship, of having to think through everything from designing a business card to figuring out what space you were going to be working with, to choosing your own clients, having the freedom, which one doesn't have in the larger law firms, to choose one's own clients and then take a case from beginning to end. All of that I found very, very energizing and very enjoyable. And the cases I had were the kinds of cases that had a, a beginning and an end. So I always saw the fruit of my work. It wasn't like I was working on a commercial litigation case that could be going on for years and years and years and end up in the settlement where, you know, neither party is particularly happy with the result. So it, it worked for me. You said that you transitioned from family law to international maritime law to the State Department. How did that happen? What was the drivers to those, that kind of transition? Well, the international maritime law came before the family law. But oh, okay. what I did was after the family law, I, I went back to public international law, which is really the law between nations. That had been my first love. It is what I had done my master's degree at Cambridge University in. I had always been fascinated by the topic of international law. But when I came to the United States, I wasn't able to practice in that field. It's, it's a very small group of people can practice in the field of international law. And it's really at the State Department that you get to practice it in its, its highest form. I wasn't a U.S. citizen at the time, so I wasn't eligible to work at the State Department in that capacity. By the time I had my own practice, I had become a U.S. citizen, and I, I thought to myself that I, I really should make an effort to get back into the field that I had loved so much, give it a shot. I decided to apply to the State Department and see if they would have me. If they would have me, then I would try it out, because I didn't want to live my life regretting that I had never tried applying to the State Department. I did. The doors opened, and I decided to go and work there. I enjoyed it while it lasted, and then I, had a, I became a mother. I'm a mother of one child and decided that I wanted to devote more time to being with her. 
therefore left my job, decided that it was time to do something different and craft a new way of being that would afford me both intellectual stimulation, the ability to be of service somehow to humanity by using my talents, and also having the time and space to be the best mother I could be to my daughter. So what kind of work did you do in the area of international law before you entered the State Department? Before I entered the State Department, I did not practice in the field of public international law. I had Mm. studied it, but I had never had the opportunity to practice it. When people talk about international banking law and international maritime law, which were two fields that I practiced in, those don't deal with the law between nation states. Those have to do with you advise, essentially, for instance, banks, in the case of banking law, about foreign banks, about U.S. regulations and tell them what hoops they need to jump through and what they need to do to abide by U.S. laws in order to do business in this country. Same with international transportation law. You're basically advising foreign carriers and conferences of carriers as to what the U.S. regulations are that govern their activities within the United States. So it's not public international law. Public international law I practiced for the first time at the State Department. And I was working in the area of Iran and Iraq, dealing with a whole host of issues, including the issue of the damages that the Iraqi government owed under various claims made by individuals, corporations, and international organizations arising from Iraq's illegal invasion of Kuwait. The United Nations, the Security Council, actually set up an arm called the UNCC. They dealt with claims that people, they allowed people to bring claims against the government of Iraq for the damages that it had wrought as a result of its illegal activities. So, for example, when it went into Kuwait, one of the things they did was they burnt a lot of the oil wells that caused a lot of environmental damage, and so people were able to bring environmental claims. So why did it go through the State Department? Because it was the only place that where one could really practice public international law. As I said, it's a, it's a very small group of people in this country or in any country who really get the chance to practice the law between nations. My question is, why did these people who were staking claims going through the State Department and you were dealing with it rather than directly with the UN? Because the United Nations had set up an agency in which certain governments were representative, the United States being one of them, and the United States was handling claims brought by U.S. citizens. So each country dealt with the claims brought by its citizens, and then they would examine the claims, make recommendations on what should be done, and then we would gather together in Geneva to discuss uh, and and agree upon, as a group of nations, members of this commission, what the appropriate amount of damages were for each individual case. So it was because we were representing U.S. claimants and corporations. So these were claims against the Saddam Hussein government? Correct. And were these claims eventually settled before the Saddam Hussein government fell? A number of them were decided upon, and I think the claims are still continuing. You know, there was a fund that was set aside from the 
oil revenues, as oil was sold from Iraq, a certain percentage of the revenues were siphoned off immediately by the United Nations and put into a special account, and the damages were paid out of that account. And you said you also dealt with Iran issues? I also dealt with the Iran issue, sort of old cases arising from the time of the revolution, where the United States had sold a whole bunch of military equipment over the years to the Shah. Once the revolution started, obviously, we stopped supplying them with the government of Iran with the parts necessary to keep those military planes, for instance, and so on going. And so they brought claims against the United States, and these claims were being heard in a court in The Hague in the Netherlands. The claims had been in play for a number of years, over 20 years already by the time I got to the State Department. And as far as I know, they're still ongoing. You know, there are claims and counterclaims, and they'll eventually be settled, I'm sure, when relations between the two countries get better. That's a very hopeful attitude. (laughs) Well, it'll have to come eventually, (laughs) hopefully sooner than later. What gives you that hopeful attitude? What gives me the hopeful attitude, I guess, being a Baha'i infuses me with a sense of optimism. I, you know, I really don't know on this particular front. We had all hoped that the situation in Iran would get better for, for everybody a long time ago, but it, it looks like it's, it's taken a lot longer than anybody had anticipated. So who knows what will happen? At this point, I suppose anything could happen. Anything could happen at any time. Now, what was it that interested you in studying law in the first place back in England? I think it stemmed from the fact that my father had been a lawyer. I mentioned earlier I never knew my father, and I think a part of me wanted to walk in his footsteps. I was always also very good at crafting arguments and trying to persuade people, and I loved language. So I always envisioned myself standing in court and arguing cases. That's really what propelled me towards the law. So you've written a book called Collective Security Within Reach. What initiated you to write this book? Well, my stint at the State Department made me realize that in the face of all the problems that we face globally, there seemed to be a dearth of fresh solutions. The other thing I realized is that there are so many crises that are constantly popping up around the world that those who are in positions of leadership are constantly in the business of putting out fires, and they seem to lurch from crisis to crisis. Nobody seems to have the time to sit back, think long-term, think strategically, and think about how we can attempt to craft proactive as opposed to reactive solutions to a number of these global problems, and more importantly, solutions that all hang together in a coherent fashion. One of the things I've been struck by over the years, again and again when I was at the State Department, is that as we craft these spur-of-the-moment solutions to the crisis of the day, very often the solution that we craft is not only incongruent with the solution that we've crafted to another problem, but the solution itself sows the seeds for the very next disaster. 
And all of this is because our solutions are based on expediency. In other words, based on narrow, short-term interests. We think in the short term. We think in terms of narrow self-interest. And it always gets us into hot water. So I decided to attempt something different, which was to try to sit back and think of what a coherent system of collective security would look like. In other words, a coherent international collective system that would ensure the safety of human beings around the world and would tackle a bunch of these global problems, including genocide, nuclear proliferation, the use of force at the international level, the International Court of Justice, how we could make our International Court of Justice more effective and more viable, how we could reform the Security Council, how we could resolve border problems, and ensure fair and adequate access to energy on the part of all nations. These kinds of problems that are all really interconnected. And the idea was to take a principled approach, and that thinking was inspired by the Baha'i writings. Settle on a set of operational principles of international relations, if you like. Get consensus around those principles on the part of the leaders of the world. And then start applying those principles in a very methodical, systematic fashion to solving each of these problems. And by doing that, I was able to come up with or propose a series of very concrete recommendations in a number of areas. Uh, and the beauty of it, the way I see it, is that all the solutions to the individual problems are actually congruent. They hang together because the glue that holds them together are the principles. When you mention short-term fixes that then end up creating a problem later in the future, the, the obvious one that comes to mind is the uh, funding of the Mujahideen to drive out the Soviet Union, and now they become the Taliban, and now we're fighting the Taliban. Exactly. Yeah. That is a perfect example, and I think I, I actually mentioned that example in the book. Another one is the Saddam Hussein problem. Mm-hmm. We actually funded Saddam Hussein's regime against the Iranians when Iran and Iraq were at war with each other because we considered him the lesser of the two evils. We were worried that Iran, if it won the war, would then export its revolution to the Middle East. So we trained and funded him. Uh, we, we trained the army and funded him. And then, lo and behold, we decided at some point that he himself represented a scourge and we had to go in and get rid of him and his regime. So I- exactly, those are two prime examples of exactly that phenomenon. Now, you said the prerequisite was a consensus on principles by the world leaders. Yes. What would that set of principles look like? I propose a number of principles to be included in this set of principles. One of them is the recognition that the advantage of the part, so the advantage of one nation, can only be guaranteed by guaranteeing the advantage of the whole, the whole global community, in other words. We really need to to understand this and imbibe this principle and then act on that basis. Once we understand it, one of the things that will flow from it is recognition that state sovereignty 
is no longer an unfettered concept. No one nation can act with impunity as it pleases in all things, even as it relates to its own peoples. And the world has been getting there slowly. That's one example. Those two principles are key. Another example of a principle is that force needs to be used as a servant of justice. Some people think that we should never, ever use force in international relations. I agree that force should not be a tool of international relations as between one country and another. However, there are times when a country is disturbing the, the peace or threatening the peace of the whole world. At that point, it is appropriate under certain circumstances that need to be clearly defined for the collective whole, for the international community in unity to work together and use force, if necessary, to bring that nation to heal. It's sort of akin to the, the concept that if a body is, has cancerous cells in it, in order to save the body, you may have to go in with harsh chemicals that destroy not only the cells that are ill, but may, in fact, destroy some of the good cells and do destroy the good cells as well. And that's part of the sacrifice that is unfortunate but necessary in order to maintain the body intact. And it's the same thing with international peace. Sometimes the use of force at an international level by the collective whole is necessary in order to ensure the peace and well-being of the whole community of nations. Would you say the Iraqi attack on Kuwait was an example of collective response to a threatening act by a nation? Iraqi attack on Kuwait was not a collective response. I, I, I think you mean that was the response of the coalition that went in against Iraq as a result. I, I, am I understanding your question correctly? Right. How would your collective security look differently in that situation? Right. Okay, that's a, that's a very good question. The collective response that we saw was really a cobbling together of a coalition of nations. The problem with that is, and we've seen this, our history has demonstrated it, is that unless the entire international community acts together in unison, you open the door for nations to point a finger against that group of nations that may have acted with the best possible intentions and say, aha, you acted against us because you hate us because of our religion or because you really wanted our oil or because you had some hidden agenda. How would my approach that is, again, inspired by the Baha'i writings, how would it differ? It would differ in that, first of all, the rules would be pre-established. So there would be consensus on the part of all the leaders of all the nations of the world in advance that says, in the following sets of circumstances, in the case of Iraq and Kuwait, in the, in, in the circumstance of the illegal invasion by one country of, uh, of another, then the entire international community agrees beforehand that as soon as that circumstance arises, we will arise as one, not just a coalition, a small group of us, but all of us in unison, we will arise and step in and make sure that that government has been brought to heel. Who would do this? So the rules are set in advance. The rules are set collectively. 
and then they're executed collectively as well. In other words, they're executed not by the armies of a few nations, but by what I propose to create, which is an international standing force. And there's a whole chapter in my book on how, what the steps are that you take towards the eventual creation of an international standing force that really needs to represent the community of nations and earn the trust of all the nations and peoples so that when they step into act, they are truly representing the international community as a whole. If we had such a force, the reality is that there would be far fewer situations where the use of it would actually be needed. I firmly believe that one of the reasons we have so many of these problems with nations behaving badly, and we call them rogue nations, or nations who essentially flout international laws, the reason they do it is because they know that nobody is going to enforce the laws against them. Once they know that there's a serious force and that the nations have agreed beforehand that in a certain set of circumstances that force will be used, I think the incidences of bad behavior will decline considerably. Looking at certain attitudes regarding intervention, even on an economic sanction level, some nations I notice, Russia and China, are very resistant to any kind of intervention of another country. Do you think it's realistic for countries like Russia and China to, and I'll get into the United States in a minute because they have to change their attitudes in this whole idea of national sovereignty trumping everything else. But in regards to Russia and China, do you think that it's realistic at this point or do you think there needs to be a paradigm shift or attitude shift that these nations, the United States, China, and Russia, could even accept these principles that you're, you're naming? That is, of course, sort of one of the, the million-dollar questions. So if one actually analyzes the reasons why nations such as Russia and China are resistance, as you say, to, to intervention in other countries, it's because, again, of expedient short-term interests that they perceive that they have. In particular, the issue of adequate access to energy sources on the part, for instance, of China. We've seen this with the Sudan and Darfur, where China has been very resistant to sanctions being imposed on the Sudanese government for its actions in Darfur because the Chinese have a very strong interest in oil and the energy resources of Sudan, and they have invested a lot of money in drilling for oil and so on, and they need large amounts of oil to sustain their economic growth, which is very rapid. So one of the major issues that I propose that we solve is precisely the issue of fair and adequate access on the part of all the nations of the world to energy. So imagine that we are now at the point where you have an international system in place that ensures that all nation states have fair access to the quantities of energy that they need for their growth and development. Once that problem is removed, a nation like China will no longer feel that it's bartering away one of the prime movers for its growth 
by sticking to a principle that says, thou shalt not commit suicide, that human rights abuses are bad. So you actually free countries up to do the right thing. That's one of the strengths of undertaking this exercise of trying to solve a bunch of these global issues. Because what essentially happens is that you've got competing interests and each nation decides for itself, well, this interest of mine trumps the other interest I have in ensuring that human rights, for instance, are followed and adhered to in this other country. That's low on my scheme of priorities. The other thing that needs to be done is obviously a, it's a persuasive act of demonstrating to governments that standing firm on principles actually in the long term redounds to their own benefits. And there are ways of, of making those arguments. That the very system that I propose of ensuring that nations have adequate access to energy involves an understanding that the advantage of the part can only be ensured by ensuring the advantage of the whole. And it's based on a model that we've already seen in the world and that's been very successful. And it's the model of the European uh, coal and steel community in Europe. So this exercise was actually done in Europe in the aftermath of the Second World War, apropos of, of coal and steel, and was very successful. How did that work? Well, essentially, the nations of Europe, as you know, were decimated in the aftermath of the Second World War, and they all needed access to lots of coal and steel in order to reconstruct their countries, from building buildings to ships to railroads, everything required steel. And to make steel, you needed lots of coal. And many wars in Europe had been fought over hundreds of years over access precisely to these two resources. So the coal and, coal and steel in those days are sort of the equivalent of our oil and gas and nuclear energy today. In addition to that, you had the horrible rivalry between Germany and France, right? Two countries that had fought many wars with each other, that didn't trust each other, that had fought in two world wars on opposite sides. The question became, well, how do we undertake this duty of reconstructing Europe? One brilliant man, Jean Monnet, came up with an amazing idea that proved very simple but very effective. He said, okay, you guys don't trust each other, so let's just take all the coal and steel that both countries have and that any other European country that wants to sign on to the system has, and let's put it in the hands of a supranational organization that will have people from all these countries included in it. And that organization will be empowered to determine the quantities of coal and steel that each nation needs at any given time. They will know how much of this material is produced, of the coal and steel is produced. They will step up production if necessary because they'll be managing essentially and supervising the production. And they will ensure that the coal and steel gets to these countries and is distributed at a fair price to everybody. The system had many, many strengths to it, including the fact that unlike many international organizations that are hampered by government interference, he insisted that this supranational organization be completely independent of national control so that no one nation member of this organization could dictate how it were to operate. 
the way he did it was by ensuring that the funding for the organization didn't come from the nation states, but rather from a tax, from tariffs that were levied on the production of the coal and steel. So he ensures the independence of this organization. He then gives the organization the right to actually enforce its rules directly inside each of the member countries by using the courts within that country. This was a, a, an amazing innovation. I mean, now it's the rule of thumb in the European Union, but it was really started by Jean Monnet's concept that you create a supranational organization and then you allow it to bypass the legislatures of each of the member countries, make rules that corporations and individuals have to obey, and if they flout them, you haul them up before the courts of their own country and you use the judiciaries of those countries to impose fines, penalties, and punish in whatever way appropriate those individuals. Another strength of the system was that decisions were to be taken by majority vote, which is very different from what we see, for instance, at the United Nations and the Security Council, where they strive for unanimity and there's a veto system. It essentially ensures that on most of them, the really critical issues that they need to decide upon, there is total inaction and paralysis. Whereas his system, the beauty and the strength of it was that you have full consultation and then you take a vote and the majority rules. So there are all these components of a system that were put into place and it actually worked. And the analyses that were done in the aftermath demonstrated that the, each of the European countries, the six member nations of the European coal and steel community did better economically in terms of their access to coal and steel and what they had to spend on it than they would have done if they'd gone it alone. Better than that is when you actually read the reports, the minutes of what went on in the parliaments, the parliamentary debates before each of the nations decided to sign on to this treaty. You have exactly this conversation. What are we doing here? Do we really mean to give up this really critical part of our sovereignty and give it up into the hands of some supranational organization that's going to be able to create rules that bypass our legislature? I mean, we're the elected bodies for these countries. And what do you mean that they're going to make rules that they're going to be able to enforce directly in our countries? And yet, despite all of these misgivings that they had and their fear of losing sovereignty, they recognized that what they had to benefit far exceeded what they stood to lose, which was a, a portion of their sovereignty. Smart arguments can be crafted to demonstrate that each nation's self-interest can best be served by working together collectively with other nations and ceding a portion of their sovereignty for the collective good. Now, you said in your book you had recommended changes to the Security Council. There are a whole series of changes. I'll give you a couple of examples. You know that the chief task of the Security Council is to maintain peace and security in the world. That's really what they were set up in the United Nations Charter to do. And what's interesting when you read the terms under which they're supposed to do that, if you read their terms of reference, their mandate under the UN Charter, you see that they are empowered to act under a variety of circumstances. 
And the specific wording in the UN Charter is that they can act and do a number of things, including use force to maintain peace if one of three things happens, if there's a threat to the peace, a breach of the peace, or an act of aggression. Now, those terms, as you can see, and those, that's the precise wording, are extremely vague. And the problem with having such vague language is several fold. One is that the Security Council, especially in the first few decades of its existence, was very skittish to use its authority at all to act when the peace of the world was threatened, because it was worried that the words were so vague that it would be accused of stepping beyond the bounds of its authority. Another problem, of course, that we all know about is the, the issue of, of the veto power that the five permanent members of the Security Council wield. That veto has to go. One of the principles that I talk about in my book that we need to accept and build consensus around is the principle of oneness, of the oneness of peoples and nations. If you think about it, if you start off with that premise that we are all one, can't possibly conceive of a, an international relations system in which you have a body that says, you know what, we think very highly of you and we respect you and we think of you as one, but you know what, we're going to have veto power. We reserve to ourselves the right to veto any suggestion you make. And even if 191 nations of the world think that X idea is good for everyone because we happen to be one of five members who has veto power, we're going to exercise it. So veto is one power that, that has to go. The other thing is that we need to flesh out what is meant by these terms, breach of the peace, threat of the peace, act of aggression. And we now have enough experience as an international community of nations under the UN system to know what kinds of international behavior are considered unacceptable by and large by most of the community of nations. How do we know this? We know this from custom and practice. But more importantly, we know it because we have a series of international treaties that we have now signed on to. Treaties against torture, treaties against genocide, treaties against a whole host of behavior. And we can include those within the definition of breach of the peace, threat to the peace, and act of aggression. So that the Security Council, when a circumstance arises that falls under one of these headings, can, without dithering, which is what it does right now, dither a lot, can say, okay, we've already pre-agreed that when genocide happens, then these are the consequences that flow. We immediately activate the International Standing Army, and we go in, and this is what we do. So those are two ideas. There are a whole host of both procedural reforms and substantive reforms that I propose, but that just gives you a taste of the kinds of things that we're looking at. Now, you had said also in your book that you had made recommendations in a number of cases or issues on the world stage today. Uh, I was wondering if you could give me some examples. Yes, I've made recommendations for action to solve a number of global problems. The energy problem is one of them. Nuclear nonproliferation is another issue. I have a, a whole set of proposals for what we can do to fix 
the broken system that we have, which was put into place essentially to ensure that a nuclear proliferation didn't happen. And I have proposals for, you know, how to make the International Court of Justice, which is currently a very weak and ineffective body in many ways, and one of which many nations and peoples are very suspicious, how to bolster it, make it more robust, make it more trustworthy in the eyes of the peoples of the world and therefore used more, and other recommendations. So I haven't worked on specific cases. These are concrete proposals to world leaders for action to be taken to solve these global problems. Now, could you take one of those for us and describe some of the recommendations that you have for the issue? Certainly. Let's take, for example, since it's a hot topic, the nuclear nonproliferation problem. Uh, we have a treaty in place that was established and intended to ensure that nations that did not have nuclear weapons already never sought to gain them. It tried to do this by, first of all, promising that the nations that did have nuclear weapons would make their best efforts and act with the best goodwill to get rid of them. And the other mechanism by which it sought to ensure that other nations didn't try to get nuclear weapons or nuclear facilities was to say, look, if you need access to nuclear energy for peaceful purposes, then you're entitled to have it. In other words, if you need nuclear fuel, for instance, to, to generate electricity, then we'll make sure that you have access to it. Unfortunately, the system has failed to work as intended for a whole host of reasons, and those need to be fixed. So, for example, right now this treaty, which is an international agreement between many nations in the world, provides that, first of all, signing on to the treaty is a voluntary act, and withdrawing, you can withdraw from the treaty at any time with only three months' notice to the Security Council. And your reasons for withdrawal are really, you don't have to give any reasons. You can just say that there were some extraordinary circumstances that arose without specifying what they are that affect your national security. And bingo, you're out without any consequences. What ends up happening is that nations sign on to the treaty and because they've signed on, they then say, okay, now allow us to build nuclear facilities or give us access to nuclear technology so that we can build facilities because we need electricity. We just want nuclear for peaceful purposes. They then get access to all the technology and information and know-how. Once they're there, they start, if they have the intention of building nuclear weapons, they start building, in tandem, secret weapons facilities to weaponize the nuclear material that they have. Once they think that that system has gotten far enough along that they can go it on their own, they then say, you know what, we don't need to be part of this treaty anymore. And they claim that for national security purposes and some extraordinary circumstance, they're now withdrawing. They now have access to 
to nuclear facilities, to the technology, and they now have their nuclear weapons. This is exactly what happened with North Korea. So one of my proposals is that, first of all, all nations have to be party to this treaty. It's not optional anymore. It can't be optional anymore. It's, the issue at hand is way too serious to leave it up to the nations to opt in or out. And withdrawal from the treaty can no longer be an option either, especially not without consequences. I mean, the idea that you can flout all the rules and then get away with it all is childish. The other reason the system has failed is that under the Nuclear Nonproliferation Treaty, once a nation has signed on and said, I won't build nuclear facilities that make weapons, you become subject to occasional monitoring on the part of an organization that we've all heard about in the news, which is the IAEA, the International Atomic Energy Agency. However, for that to happen, you as the nation signatory to the treaty has to enter into yet another system of agreements with the IAEA that allows them to come in and monitor your facilities. That, again, is voluntary. And again, that makes absolutely no sense. If we want to make sure that the nuclear facilities we have in the world are safe, we have to make it mandatory for nations that have nuclear facilities to allow nuclear inspections to take place. Otherwise, we're going to continue finding out about these secret weapons programs, just like we did in Iraq, in North Korea, in Iran, in Libya, which actually came clean itself and gave it up. There are suspicions that other countries have similar programs. So we've got to actually take active steps. So you make that a mandatory process. That's not a recommendation. Then, under this process of monitoring, believe it or not, the system we have is, is really in some ways laughable. What happens is that if you've already agreed as a nation that has nuclear facilities, you've already agreed that the IAEA inspectors can come and monitor to make sure that you're using the facility for peaceful purposes, you can require the inspectors to get visas to enter your country. They have to give notice before they come, which means that you have a chance to go clean up your facility and hide the stuff you don't want them to see. You can take a building and say, you know what, in this building, you're allowed to look at these two rooms, but the other 10 rooms are off limits to the inspectors because of national security issues. Well, what do you suppose happens? The nation, if it's actually hiding an illicit weapons program, pulls all the illicit material into the 10 rooms that it's not allowing the inspectors to see and allows them access to two rooms that have been cleaned up. The fact that we actually have a system that allows this to happen is crazy. So monitoring and inspections, I propose, have to be no notice. In other words, inspectors, international inspectors, should be allowed to enter a country at any time without prior notice. They shouldn't need visas. They should have access to absolutely any site they wish to visit, not only at the declared sites, and all declarations are voluntary again. And guess what? If a nation is hiding a program, it's not going to volunteer information about where the secret location is located. So inspectors need to be able to act on tips, 
from people, from informants, and go and visit absolutely any site in the country without prior notice. Those are some examples of the recommendations I'm proposing. But one of the most far-reaching proposals, though, um, is that all of the nuclear facilities around the world need to be put under the supervision and management and control of a supranational organization. Again, akin, I'm using the European coal and steel model, the model of their high authority. So putting it under their management and supervision so that they know exactly what nuclear material is being produced, where in the world, how much of it, and for what purposes. And if countries need nuclear fuel to produce electricity, then they can ensure that those countries get the amount of fuel they need in order to meet their legitimate peaceful requirements. Eventually, I envisioned that such an organization would assume control over these nuclear facilities, but it's a step-by-step process, and I think you start by putting it under the management and control of an organization, and you may start with a bunch of regional organizations, and then eventually, as people get used to the idea of ceding sovereignty to a regional organization, then create an international organization or a supranational organization to do this. That's an example of a set of concrete recommendations that I've made to solve a particular problem that is a very important problem. It's considered by the nations of the United Nations one of the most dangerous problems that faces us. And the UN itself has been paralyzed in terms of coming up with a system that is able to tackle the grave security concerns that arise from nuclear proliferation. So folks can read about these recommendations and suggestions in your book, Collective Security Within Reach. So Veda, do you have any projects in the works? Yes, I'm currently doing research on my second book that is going to look exactly at the tensions and the linkage between the environmental issue, climate change, the need for clean energy, And believe it or not, most nations of the world, including a lot of environmentalists, have concluded that in the short term, nuclear energy is a good alternative source of energy to fossil fuels and the nuclear proliferation issue and sort of looking at it and saying, how can we tackle all three of these problems, the energy issue, the environmental issue, and the nuclear proliferation issue? They're all intimately connected. And how do we create systems that address the concerns on all three fronts? Well, Silveda, we've run out of time, but I want to thank you so much for joining me and telling me about your book called Collective Security Within Reach. Thank you very much, Silveda. Thank you very much for inviting me to be on this program. I've enjoyed it, and I look forward to participating again. I hope you enjoyed that interview with Silveda Ma'ani Ewing, author of the book Collective Security Within Reach. For a copy of this and other interviews, you can go to the website www.abahaiperspective.com. For information specifically on the Baha'i faith, you can go to the website www.baha'i.org, where you can call the toll-free number 1-800-22-UNITE. I hope you'll join me next time on A Baha'i Perspective.
This is WXOJLP Northampton, 103.3 FM, your Valley Free Radio station, streaming at www.valleyfreeradio.org.